This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. I've got a killer conversation with a fellow Aussie to share with you. It's Tana Douglas. She is the world's first female roadie. She was there at the very beginning as bands started getting out of the clubs and into arenas and eventually stadiums. I read a book recently, it's called Loud, A Life in Rock and Roll by the World's First Female Roadie. It is outstanding. I'll put a link in the bio so you can check it out yourself. A bit of background, she spent time on the road with Deep Purple, ELO, Elton John, Lenny Kravitz, Pearl Jam, Ozzy Osbourne, and she was there at the very beginning as ACDC started their journey to becoming the world's biggest rock and roll band. All right. So here she is, the great Tanner Douglas. Hello, how are you? Great, great to hear your Australian accent, even though you've been in Los Angeles probably more more years than you care to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Afraid so. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> how, how do you, I know you're a global citizen, I get that. I've read the book and I love the book, by the way, and plenty of questions about that. But um, Thank you. How do you find it? Did, did it take you a long time to adjust to the? I'm talking about the day to day of Los Angeles compared to Brisbane. Well, I mean, I was in. I mean, I left Brisbane when I was a kid. You know what I mean. So um, Australia, I left when I was 17. Lived in England for eight years. Yeah. Um, Europe for a couple of years. The States, and then back to Europe, back to Australia. You know, so I mean, it is. It does actually work out that I've spent more time, if you add it all up, yeah. in in the United States than any other country. So it is an adjustment. It's it's definitely an adjustment. When I first got transferred, because I got transferred from the UK, I was based in London at the time, and the production company in London. Um, wanted me to come over and work for the LA office that was just opening up or had just opened up recently. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't brand new, but it was expanding. And um, it was, it was a, quite a shock, actually. It's, um, you know, I mean, I, I knew there was a big difference touring with, like from having toured with American bands and English bands. I, I, I got there was a big difference, but um when I moved to America, it was quite a, quite a shock. You know, everything was definitely bigger, louder, <laughs> yeah. faster. You know, so it was quite a thing. And now, now it's going through another radical change. You know, which is unfortunate, but um, the rest of the world's going through it as well. But you know, everyone seems to have crazy politicians at the moment. So the world's gone mad. So it's I don't know what I'd gain from leaving here and going somewhere else. You know, it's all seems to be a rat race at the moment. Look, I talk, I've done this podcast now for seven or eight years, or seven years, sorry, I should say, into the eighth year, seven, four years, and i got to say, like these days, I'm not saying you can't tell the difference, but it's very flat these days. In the Western Hemisphere, you could be talking to someone from Australia, Canada, the United States, the UK, and we're basically experiencing the same pressures and the same issues, whether it's inflation, hyperinflation, the same sort of issues that are going on within community and the like. It's not like it was, say, even 20 years ago where you could where you could go to, I went to Los Angeles 20 years ago and it was just overwhelming. <laughs> I think I think there's going to be a huge shift in world power and I think this is just the throes of it. I think you're spot on, Tony. I think you've made a very astute observation there. And, yeah, we're seeing, you know, all this from the river to the sea bullshit that we're seeing at the moment um, carry on with it. I'm not sure where where people are getting their, their North Star. It seems to be skewed. 
obviously to the left <laughs> at the moment, but there's just this idea that there's an idea that words are violence, but actual violence is resistance. I just can't understand. I mean, I can't understand how we got here, but, you know, that part of myself that's very much for the human race is very despondent at the moment over that. Yeah, it's 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 a sickening place to be, I think. Mm. Sickening place to be. I mean, there's no there, there's no logic to it. It's and and people are just being hand fed bullshit and swallowing it. They're just saying more, please. Can I have some more? <laughs> it's like what's going on? <laughs> you remember when we were when we were? I'm I'm 45. Okay, so I don't think we're you know obviously a few years older than me, but I think we're a similar generation. Okay, remember the I remember the 80s is what I'm saying. Certainly, right. <laughs> but. Yeah. Do you remember you used to be able to have a group of mates or some were fairly right-wing, some were fairly left-wing, but you could always have a beer and you could always oh, yeah. share stories. And I'd, look, I'm fairly right-wing, to be honest with you, and just about all of the bands that I've ever been in, if you share political perspectives, they're almost all left-wing. But I still accept it and I still accept yeah. them is my point, but I feel like that's gone. But my question around that is, do you think that's a generational thing or do you think that's just the way time moves and evolves? I think I think there's been so many changes and there's been so many polarizing things that have happened and and we're told they're polarizing like it's it's fed to us that if we don't agree with this there's something wrong with us you yeah. know and nobody wants to be the odd person out you know but I mean like America's completely polarized 50 50 mm-hmm. you know this next election's just going to be hideous it's going to be totally hideous there's an idiot running and there's a crazy person running so I don't know. You know, I mean, one's more dangerous than the other, but you know, what what's the other difference? I I don't know. I don't know. It's you know, I mean, it, it it's because we've been fed this for so long, and people have learnt to not not resist. You know, they they don't resist anymore. It's just oh, you know, it's like what I find disgusting is when um, people stand by and watch someone be attacked or something. Yeah. You know, whether it's verbally or physically, it's like, what are you doing? You're filming on your cameras. Stop it. What is going on? You know, I mean, there's no no empathy anymore, you know, no empathy for the other person. There's only an empathy for me, what I want, and if if the person standing next to me happens to prop that up, then that's okay. They can stand next to me. If they don't, then there's absolutely no room for them. You know, there's no conversation. You know, like you say, you used to be able to have a joke and you you would make a joke of someone, you know, if they were like incredibly liberal or something and everyone else wasn't, you know, you'd be like, oh, God, here he comes, you know. Mm. You'd have a joke about it and then move straight on and, get on and continue yeah. talking. Yeah, yeah, you know, it'd be oh. like it'd be a little bit of a wind-up and that's it, you know. But now that's fighting words, you know, and, and violent fighting words. I mean... You know, America's never had a war on its home turf, but it's about to have, if it doesn't have an international one, it's going to have a civil one. So either way it's coming, you know, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but I just don't see any other way around it. You well, know? you're you're there. You can you can check the temperature better, better than anybody in Australia about what's going on in the United States, but that's certainly the perspective I'm forming. And and a lot of the musicians that I'm talking to, a lot of the conversations don't actually make that I have about these topics don't actually make the podcast. But we're all scared of the same things. What we talked about, okay? Yeah. It's that 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 ability to just get along, and the absence of common sense, 
and what does it then replace with? And I've got to share my opinion on the whole thing. And it's not that I walk around Bible bashing, but I'm still Christian. I'm still Catholic. Right. And it's an absence of God in people's lives. And I'm not saying you have to go to mass or church every Sunday, but it's that whole idea that there's something bigger than you beyond that you can therefore have faith in when times are tough. They seem to think, especially these young lefty types, that they've got the answer to bloody everything. And it's through intersectional politics. And identity politics and this pathway that they're going down when you look at history and you look at how identity politics has been defined applied sorry through communism go back to china stalinist russia it ends in murder just mass fucking murder excuse my language but no. I, I just can't understand why these these people are advocating for these outcomes knowing that history has already taught us that it ends in the demonization of people and effectively and and it's a death cult yeah, I mean, the problem with religion, though, is religion stopped being religion and it became something else. It became this commercial machine, you know, and if you don't give your money to us, you're not a worthy person, you know. I mean, that to me was the end of religion in my mind once it became a commercial entity, you know. I mean, you know, to me, religion doesn't have any empathy either. There's zero empathy in religion, you know, if you're not of that grain that they are then there's no room for you. I mean, you can see that right now. It's going on in the Middle East, you know. Well, certainly I mean, with Islam. Yeah, with no question. Yeah. Islam, I mean, yeah. you know, there's but but it's with all religions. It's all religions. There is no, there is no middle ground. No one's prepared to give. And now the general public's acting the same way, you know. Did mm. they learn that in church? I don't know. I don't go to church. But, you know, I think I think religion, I'm not saying religion well, a lot of people would say religion caused it all. But um, the, the problems that we're having right now, I, I think a lot of it can be traced back to different religion behaviour. I mean, it's behaviour. You know, you've got this, you know, whether it's Bill Graham or whether it's, you know, that that other guy or, you know, or that woman, you know, they're big television show stars. They've got these yeah. huge, huge mega cathedrals. They're flying private jets. They're getting caught having affairs with people. They're getting caught this and that. I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous, you know, and it's like, and that's meant to be your solace? I don't think so. <laughs> and yes. then others are just plain outright killing each other. And it's like. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a, it's an interesting perspective. So I actually work for the Uniting Church. You know, the Uniting Church in Australia. I'm, I'm a journalist and content creator for the Uniting Church these days. And Believe okay. me, as I said, you, I'm clearly into heavy metal. I grew up listening to satanic music, the whole thing. But <laughs> I, I never lost my North Star about Jesus and God, you see. That was always the difference right. between me and many, many others, you know. But I guess the point in, in, in and amongst all of that is I find that I'm one of the I'm one of the only people in the in the organization that I think has more of a traditional view of Christianity. A lot of it is now woke. A lot of it is now yeah. we've got the flags and stuff within within buildings, and I say, well, look, this is all social justice, and that's that's all well and good, okay. But the church actually needs to be about faith because people are doing it tough, and they need to understand that. Let's disconnect from the organised aspect of it. Let's just—it's not even about coming into church, but you can plug into the message, whether it's the Bible or. And as I say, I'm really careful not to be a Bible basher because I'm not that at all. I'm simply yeah. saying that life is long, life is tough. There are myriad of ways you can you can connect to God, whether it be through Krishna consciousness, Hinduism, even Buddhism, which I know is more of an absence of of uh, not so much faith, but it's an absence of thinking, and therefore it's a bit of a void. But there are there are all these ways that that you can step outside of yourself. Um, 
And I guess they make the point about me working for the church is that I try to maintain that aspect of of faith and plugging into faith. And I see a lot of the stuff I see around me, particularly coming from assembly in Sydney, is extremely woke, which to me is sort of the antithesis of what the faith is all about. Well, I mean, to me, if there's, you know, faith should be held as strong as giving. And that's the bit that's missing. No one's giving anymore. Mm. Everyone's just taking, you know. So to me, a religion's no good if if it's solely faith-based. It should be about giving. It should be about getting out into the community. It should be about helping people. It shouldn't be about flying around in private jets. It shouldn't be about having mega million mansions. It shouldn't be about all these tax you know, tax breaks and collecting properties and lands and artefacts and all that stuff. I mean, it's just lost its whole point in my mind, mm. you know, because there is no longer any giving. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Let me ask you a question, though, about your career. Let's switch gears and talk about <laughs> I was going to say, but meanwhile. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all, look, it's always good to have a multifaceted conversation, I believe, because I have, look, I, did, I genuinely believe, mean this. I have an intelligent audience. They're, they're people like you and I, well-traveled. A lot of them are in, they work in finance. They've got families, this sort of thing. I know that because people communicate with me. And I'm still nice. not saying that alone makes them specifically intelligent, but the way in which you articulate, the way that they've enjoyed the show allows me to lead a, a draw a pretty solid conclusion that these are smart people. But I, I've, I'm going to you know, talk up your book. Um, on hang, the, on, hang on to them. <laughs> I will. I will. And the, the lovely thing is, Tana, like like you probably find, they're all across the world from Iceland to Poland to the United States. A little Absolutely. bit here in Australia. No, it's a bit disappointing. I have bugger all Australian audience, but <laughs> I try and grow it. <laughs> but uh, I, I, after reading your book, and, and I really want people to read the book, so I'm not going to talk about too many specific things about the book. I'm more going to take some questions that are inspired by what I read in the book. But my first sure. question for you is, would you do it all over again? <laughs> all of it? <laughs> why not? Yeah, let's go for uh, it. <laughs> why not? Let's go for it. Well, a lot of it I didn't have a choice with, to be honest. Um, a lot of the early on stuff I didn't have any choice or any say in. So, But, you know, that, that early on stuff in my childhood sort of prepared me for the life on the road, you know. I mean, I, I was... I was traveling constantly, moving from town to town, doing all that sort of stuff, getting uprooted, you know, never really knowing where I was going to be next and and all that sort of stuff as a child. So, you know, one of the hardest things that people find when they start working in this industry is they can't stand the lack of, um, you know, home base. You know, they, they miss it, they need it, they need their family, they need their significant others and all that sort of stuff. And and I didn't have any of that or I felt I never had any of that growing up. So I had nothing to miss. You know, instead what I'd inherited is, you know, a group of people that were like-minded and, and we all got along and, you know, the ones that didn't, I mean, obviously there's ones that don't, you know, but it was like any demograph, you know, there's always someone who doesn't fit in or someone that everyone's going to sort of wind up a little bit or, you know, some people that don't go the distance and so they get replaced, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a unique environment and because you're so close and you're thrust in together and it's, you really are living in each other's pockets, then, you know, you just build these incredible bonds and friendships that last your entire life. Do you still keep in touch with a lot of the bands, a lot of the people that you connected with, those people that you wrote about in the book? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I I keep in touch with certain people. Um, I've, I've always sort of, 
tried to keep a bit of a low key in a way. You know, I, I wouldn't hang out in dressing rooms often, you know. I mean, I'd, I'd get invited to people's homes, you know, like spent a Christmas with Elton one time and, you know, you go to someone else's place for birthdays or, you know, just, you know, got invited back to someone else's house on the Isle of Man and we spent a weekend there with the TT races going on. So you build those sort of relationships. You know, I do I... I mean, I've never kept solely in touch with anybody in my entire life. And again, I think that comes from traveling so much and and just sort of being bounced about on the wind, so to speak. You never knew where, you know, where that person had gone to, or I never knew where I was going to be next. So, you know, what's the point of sending someone a letter and saying hi when you don't know if you're going to be anywhere for them to reply back to in those days? I mean, that was how it was done. So do I run into people? Yes. Do we hit up a conversation as though neither of us ever left the room? Yes. You know, so, and that again is from being put into that situation of tightly living, working, breathing, you know, drinking, playing, doing everything together. You know, you build these friendships that that just become like families. Being around so much of it, how did you avoid the pitfalls of alcohol and drug abuse? <laughs> Did I say somewhere in my book that I avoided that? <laughs> well, I, I got the I got the impression you knew limits. Um, no, I well, um, I had very broad limits, and I seemed to have like an incredible stamina, also. So that kind of made it easier. Did I ever end up in rehabs or anything like that? No, um, I had a set of guidelines that I set myself really early on in the day, and. Um, the minute I found myself not upholding those, I would stop what I was doing, you know, and I, I've, I've done that all my life. You know, it's like if I can't, you know, I, I, I would sort of make deals with myself. If a situation comes up where I'm not prepared to do this for this person, then I shouldn't be doing this anymore, you know, whether it was, you know, whatever it was, you know, but but quite often it, it involved, you know, alcohol and, and drugs. I mean, it was everywhere. It was completely and utterly everywhere and it was mostly free. So what do you do, you know, and, and we're all doing it. Doctors were doing it, for God's sake. Politicians were doing it, you know. I mean, you know, everybody who came backstage to visit you was doing it, you know. So I've, I've, everybody did it. I mean, it was funny. I was on a podcast earlier today and... I can only remember one person, (laughs) this is really sad, I can only remember one person in the 70s, 80s, 90s who didn't drink alcohol that I worked with, one person. I've worked with hundreds of people, you know what I mean? And this was the one person that stood out. And it it was like a weird anomaly, you know. It was like, oh, this guy doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't do drugs. Oh, my God. And so we'd watch him. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, what's he going to do now, you know? And and he just did what he did, you know? Oh, actually, there was two. There was another one who was very eccentric anyway. I mean, God forbid he should never have done anything, and luckily he didn't. <laughs> he, was quite, yeah. he was quite eccentric enough on his own. He didn't need anything. But the other one was quite a normal person and and very polite, well-mannered, and but would would hang out with us and stay up late and, you know, do do various things that we were doing, but um, just didn't drink or, or do drugs, you know. So it's interesting, you know. I mean, you're surrounded with that 
that ratio, it's pretty hard to sort of not be a part of it. Mm. Look, of all of the stories that you shared, I bet there are as many or two or three times as many you decided not to throughout the book. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you share a story that you decided to leave on the cutting room floor? Yeah, I mean, a lot a lot I left on the cutting room floor because I found that they invaded someone else's privacy. You know what I mean? There was, there was, you know, if I couldn't make a joke out of it per se and couldn't do it in good spirit, then I didn't want to tell the story. You know, um, as far as stories that I haven't told, you know, there's, there's reasons for those things, you know. I mean, what do you do? I mean... <sighs> Where do we start? You know, there's there's so many hours you spend, you know, with people. Like, I mean, Elton in his house, for example, at Christmas. I don't think I shared that in the book. And, um, you know, you get an invitation. What do you do? Well, you're going to turn up, aren't you? I mean, you turn up out of curiosity. You turn up out of gratitude. But you really want to know what's going on. <laughs> you know, so, of course, you turn up, you know. And it was just lovely. I mean, it was a traditional Christmas. He loves Christmas, so he put on a traditional Christmas. His manager was there, the band were there, um, his his inner crew, which I was a part of at the time, were there. And, you know, we just had a really, really nice Christmas, you know, and what did he do? He decided that he would give everybody, not me, <laughs> but everybody in his, like, management and, and and you know, personal entourage a Porsche. You know, so that was when the 9-11s came out. So what he did was with the they had the raised numbers on the back, 9-11. I don't know if you remember. I remember. He had, the, he had those made out of 24-karat gold. You oh, know, that was things, in the book. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Things like, yeah, yeah things, things like that, you know. I mean, the, those are the things that people do, you know. I mean, you know, you go to their houses um, and I was always allowed in their homes because I never snooped. You know, it wasn't my business, you know. Someone would come back um, after having been away and they'd go, oh, my God, did you, um, is that money still in the drawer? I'm going, what money, what drawer? Well, in the hallway, in the drawer there, you know, the drawer next to the drawer that has the keys in it, yeah. Well, there's like 30 grand in there. Is it still there? Well, I guess it is if you left it there. Well, what, you never opened that drawer? Why would I open that drawer? Well, it's next to the one that you're opening every day. Well, yeah, but it's not the one I'm opening every day, you know. So that's that's my mentality. If it's not mine and it's not my business, I've got no reason to go there, you know. And I think that's why I was invited to a lot of these situations because people felt comfortable and they felt safe and they they didn't, you know, it, they knew that they didn't have to be looking over their shoulders to see if I was snooping or going through drawers or whatever, even there alone, unes, you know, unescorted, so to say, you know, I, I wouldn't look at anything because it wasn't my business, you know. So those are the sort of people that that have these bonds with people because they know that you're not out for anything. You're not because you haven't done the easy things, you haven't taken the easy things, so they know that, you know, you're trustworthy, you know, and that that to me is way more important than, you know, making off with a souvenir sort of thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> that mentality never appealed to me, you know, it never occurred to me actually, to be honest. I could relate to you from the perspective that I too went to a boarding school. Oh, and, yeah. And I, I, I was talking to somebody else who I just met, a, a mother of one of the kids at the kids' school who went to a boarding school in New Zealand and we were sort of comparing notes and, 
I think the the conclusion we both drew was that we still have a lot of habits from that time because you know it's it's right at that thumbprint stage where your thumbprint's being formed if you understand the metaphor. Absolutely. Is that do you feel like as though that that stoic work ethic and also that honesty that you've got, you know, minding your own business, keep your mind on the task? Do you think in part that is from that era in your life? Well, yeah, it, it, yes, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've spoken to my school since I left, since the book came out. They've actually got a copy of my book in the school library, which I find hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but um, I've spoken to a couple of different people, you know, members of their different associations that they have. And, you know, our school was hard. It was hard. It was a Church of England school. And there were no frills. You know, there was there was no extra niceties going on. You know, we would get bread and butter before we went to bed at night. You know what I mean? That was it, bread and butter. And and I mean parents were paying a lot of money to have us there. But but it was the mentality, I think, that they were teaching us that, you know, don't don't fall into the frills and the, you know, and, and all the, the accessories and stuff. Focus on what's hard. You know, we went to chapel 10 times. We had our own chapel on the grounds. We'd go there 10 times a week. You know, and um, and it was hard. You know, there there were no frills. There were no frills in that school. But it did teach you. It does teach you how to interact with other people. It teaches you. I mean, to me, I can still tell. I can walk into a room and tell if someone went to boarding school by just looking around the room and watching people for a little bit. There's something. It teaches you how to carry yourself. It teaches you. It gives you a sort of confidence, whether it's a strength or not. I don't think everyone gets a strength from it, but you get a certain way of carrying yourself and you get a certain knowledge about yourself, what you can and cannot do, you know, and I think that's really important, you know, and I'm thankful for it, you know. I mean, I hid the fact that I went to boarding school for a really long time because I thought people would go, oh, you're one of those, <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, so, I, you know, I, did I hide it or did I just deliberately not mention it? Deliberately not mention it, you know. So, but um, I thank it. I, I, I'm actually thankful for it because it's actually gotten me out of a lot of situations that I probably would have been floundering in if I had not gone to a boarding school because just by the things that they teach you, um, etiquettely wise, you know, all sorts of things, different. It's, it's, it's as much a training for your inner self as it is for your, your outer self. That's what I found anyway. Mm. I tend to agree. I think it also gives you a pretty good measure of if you're being lied to, if someone's trying to manipulate you or trying to scapegoat you as well, because a lot of that goes on, you probably remember. And yeah. uh, you get a, you, you're able to check the temperature, if you like, on a room in a situation, I should say, in a situation to see who's got what at stake and who's trying to further their own claims on things. I found that, and I've only noticed that in the last decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. It's absolutely true. I mean, I, I still, to this day, I'll, I'll sit in the corner and watch people in a room before I go and intermingle with people I don't know. You know, I'll, I'll watch them first. You yeah. know, and and the young brothers were like that as well. You know, they they were very much like that's. You know, I mean, Angus probably still is. You know, but they would definitely gauge a room and gauge an individual before they'd interact with them at all. You know, so I mean, it's you know, it's something that started, I think, in boarding school and then got reinforced by them. That's a really nice segue into the youngs because I've only got a couple of questions for you, but I've got a big one because 
I can't remember whose book it is. It'll kind of make the point redundant since I can't remember the source, but I did read it, which is that the Youngs have been described as resembling the Mafia. Can you relate? No, not at all. Not at all. A clan, yes, but a clan is not Mafia. A clan is for the family, about the family, and putting family first. You know, Mafia... Um, is about the business and having the family in the business so hopefully they can trust each other. Um, that's that's not the case with the youngs. It's it's about family. It's about respect for family. And it's about, I think, paying back, you know, paying back family as well, you know, very much so, you know. I mean, there was nothing but respect between George and Malcolm and Angus, you know, that's that which to me is two different, you know, different generations, so to speak, almost, even though they're brothers um, of the same family. You know, there was nothing but respect and they would push each other and they'd push each other to the limit, but they would never do anything vengeful. They would never do anything spiteful. They would never leave a dead horse's head in each other's bed. <laughs> I think it was a metaphor more than anything else. But another yeah. question is, can you? I think it's a really bad metaphor because that that implies aggression and threats, and and none of that's true. Mm. George, I've heard him be described as very intimidating. Again, can you relate? See, I I, I found George nothing but wonderful. Um, could he intimidate people? He's a scrapper. I mean, the three of them would go toe-to-toe, you know. Is that intimidating? Yes, that's intimidating. Did they walk around intimidating people? Hell no. No. They would only, like, like for example, the fight at Sunbury between Deep Purple and ACDC. There's been so many different versions of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, my version of that, and I happen to be right there, was that there was there were, there are arguments going backwards and forwards between the camps. When I say arguments, there was like, no, we're not going to do this. Yeah, well, we're not going to do this. Yes, you're going to be. And it was really power plays between the two. But when Angus got accidentally knocked, George lost it and he just went for it and he dived in there and then the whole thing went off. So that's the difference. Is that is that aggression? No, that to me is fearless protection of your brother. You know what I mean? Don't mess with my family. Because up until then, everything could have been negotiated. But once that happened, it was everything's call everything off. This is it's done. You know, you've you've messed with one of my family members. You know, so that's the difference. That's the difference. They do it for respect of each other, you know, as opposed to mafia that does it for money, drugs, whatever. <laughs> you know, so I think it's a really, again, a really bad comparison. I'm not going to give away, as I said up top, I really don't want to give away too much about the detail in the book because this is a book that I want people to read, okay? But you were were as much a part of the young family as anybody could be without actually being part of the clan, okay, to the point where you could be described at one point a sliding doors moment where you and Malcolm could have been together, okay? Do you feel as though that was a sliding doors moment for you, though? Um. No. Um, no, what I what I see it as is a moment when young people, young, excuse the pun, um, 
you know, we were all kids, you know. I mean, Malcolm was 20, Angus was 18, and I was 16, you know. So it's we were kids. It was the first time all three, well, it was the first time either of them had lived away from home. I've been hitchhiking around the country for a year and a half <laughs> doing God knows. I won't get into that. But um, being a hippie, really. Um, so I think what it was was there was a common ground there was a vision that we all shared and there was a goal that we all shared. And I think that they were used to having strong women around them. Their mother's an incredibly strong woman. Their sister, Margaret, was an incredibly strong woman. So they didn't see me as intimidating or threatening at all. They just saw me as a strong woman, you know, and, you know, and I had their best interests at heart. I was working for them. I was living with them. And, and, you know, I don't play games. You know, I'm very upfront. If I'm, if I'm upset about something, you'll know. You know, if I think something's wonderful, you'll know. You know, so I think they appreciate that because they're very much like that as well. So, you know, I think, you know, was it a sliding doors moment? I mean, maybe some people would see it as that. I, I don't. I just see it as a moment in time where we're all learning from each other. You know, and because they did, they they instilled in me an incredible work ethic, you know, incredible work ethic that I still hold to this day. And again, you know, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for that. In, in your view, is Mark Evans important in the broader ACDC canon? Well, yeah, I mean, he's he was he was a member. I mean, he was there longer than I was there by a bit. And, you know, he was a, an actual member of the band and at the time that he was employed, he he fit the space that they needed filling. He, you know, he could play the way he did. He wasn't overbearing. He didn't have to run to the front of the stage and compete for attention. He understood his position and he played it, you know. I mean, do these things change with individuals? You know, once people start getting famous and there's more money and there's more attention and there's more girls and there's all of this, you know, each person handles that their own way and each person has to answer to themselves for that. You know, I mean, every band has, you know, problems with individual members, you know, leaving or, you know, being asked to leave and 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 there's different reasons for it all, you know. I mean, Mark was incredibly young as well. Mark was 19, you know. So he was a young kid, you know, and they all found themselves in England. They all found themselves in Europe where none, none of them spoke any language apart from English, you know, and, and you know, Malcolm had this vision that and he had a timeline and they pretty much stuck to it because he wouldn't have it any other way. So it's a, it's a lot of pressure, you know, it's a lot of pressure on different band members, you know. So, you know, I think, you know, Mark holds a place, you know, Obviously not a huge place, or they probably would have inducted him into the Hall of Fame with them, you know, but, you know, they they didn't do that, and I think that was out of respect to Cliff because he's been with them so long, you know. But um, but Mark was there in the beginning, and you can't take that from him, mm. you know. The, the other guy, the other singer, I don't think he has any place whatsoever. Dave something, I think his name is. Dave Evans, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't believe he has any place whatsoever because it wasn't this band until he'd left, you know. They were a band and they were called ACDC, but they were not the ACDC that took over the world and it took the lineup that they had to do that and, and Dave couldn't do that, 
you know, it took Bon Scott and then it took, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, my word, yeah. Yeah, so I, I I get sort of offended when when Dave does that. I mean, I, I can understand that he was close to fame with them, you know what I mean? I can I can get it. Like he was in the company of greatness, so to speak, but he wasn't there, you know. So And he wasn't there for the battles. He wasn't there for the, you know, he, he didn't go the distance, you know. At least Mark went the distance in the beginning, you know what I mean? That to me is the difference. He plays around here a fair bit. I just saw him at the Mansfield Tavern a few months back. Oh, really? DC songs. Yeah. So I think there's, um, I don't know whether the words respect, but there's goodwill toward him from the fans because he was around the, a bit bit like you, you were far more involved, of course. But because he was a musician, I think people just like being around the ACDC thing. So, well, that's what it is. It's a closeness yeah. to greatness. It's yeah. not greatness itself. Yeah. You know, it's like I want to touch this person because they touch so and so. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I know. It's, it's weird. Me isn't is, it, that you're right. Yeah, yeah. That, to, that to me is like doesn't isn't worth anything. It has no value to me. You I'm, know? I'm with you. I stand, but you've got to make it on your own merits. You can't make it on where you almost were once. You know. You you make a, a couple of well, one very astute observation about Phil in the book. I think from the sounds of things, you were one of the few people that could foresee what was going to happen decades later. And you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Were you you close to Phil at all? I liked Phil. Phil and I got on quite well. And um, he actually sent a message to me not so long ago through a a mutual friend of ours, which I thought was really quite sweet. Um, But, you know, again, I mean, to me, Phil is the drummer for ACDC, and that's just my personal opinion. I think deep down it's Angus's opinion as well, and it's probably, you know, the rest of the band's opinion as well. They just need to find a way to figure it out to make it work again, you know. Um, and, and you know, you have problems, you have struggles, you know, did he go completely off the wall? Yes, he did. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's but, but, you know, everyone handles things differently, you know. Everyone handles success differently. Everyone handles failure differently. And he had to handle both, you know. He, you know, he, he had success. I mean, Malcolm struggled, you know, with success. He, he, had, he struggled with alcohol, you know. But he got over it and he got it, you know, he got it under control, you know. Phil just had a much harder time trying to do that. And I think... That's because he didn't have the family support that Malcolm had to get him through it, you know. I really believe that there wasn't that infrastructure that would make him listen and help him through it. Did you get to say goodbye to Mel? No, I got to see him um, in, what was it, 2000? I don't know, it's in the book, uh, when they were doing that. Putting the hands yeah. in the walk. You got um, the you got the guitar. Yeah, you bought the guitar. Or you, you got yeah, 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 yeah. With Angus asked me to get that, yeah. and 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 then and I spent like two or three days with them. You know, because they had they had that going one day. Then they had two two shows, and they had a day off in between. And so we went out to dinner and we did a bunch of different stuff. And so I got to spend time with them. Did I know it was goodbye? No. But when I last saw Bond for the last time, I didn't know that was goodbye either. You know, and and that's to me is better. You know, what are you going to do? You look someone in the eye and know it's the last time you're going to see them because they're going to die. You know, that's mm. that's you know that's why we don't know when we're going to die because it would be too hard to handle. 
No. Did, Jesse, did Jesse Fink reach out to you? You know, the Bon Scott, the last days of Bon Scott. He did that. I thought it was an excellent book, by the way. No. Uh, did you read that at all? No. Check it out. I think it's worthwhile. Um, it's, it's called The Last Days of Bon Scott. Yeah, he tries to unpick. There's a. I didn't. I'm. I, I know I've asked you a bunch of questions about ACDC, but I'm not the world's biggest ACDC fan. Given I grew up listening to heavy metal and death and black metal and all the rest of it, that's only right. a thing for my interest in ACDC. I must confess. So I don't have the history of reading a lot of the interviews and the like. So I didn't. Un, I wasn't aware of there being conjecture about how Bond died, but apparently there is about his whereabouts. And Jesse Fink uh, has has written certainly it's 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 investigative journalism is and put into a book. But after I read your book, I thought I wonder if he reached out to you, and clearly he hasn't. But I I really encourage you to read that book if it's not too difficult. Mm. Of course, I know Bond was your mate. Right, right, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I've heard I've heard different versions of what he's written and different versions of what different people think of him. Um. So I never kind of went out of my way to read the book, but maybe it's worth a read, yeah. I'd, I'd say it's worth it. He seems like a decent enough fellow. I think, you know, the role that people like, I'll put, include myself into this, I, I just we just try to get to the bottom of things. And it can be kind right. at times. It can be difficult. Sometimes you accidentally make people cry. You know, it's not because we're trying to do that. It's just trying to get to the bottom of things because these people, we don't know them. You did, but they're important right. to us. right. Right. No, I get it. I get it totally. Yeah. The Angels, Australian Crawl, I could go on, but I won't. Daddy Cool and Mondo Rock. That grand era, maybe not Daddy Cool, it's a bit before this era, but 1977 to 1983. Look, I've come to a conclusion that it's about the most vibrant rock scene that ever existed, patriotism aside. Do you agree? Um, From a distance, I agree, yeah, because I was already gone. I was already living in England, you know, so... What I would see is bands like Lobby Lloyd and stuff would come over to England and do yeah. shows over there so we'd catch up and do that sort of stuff, you know. So, um, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of those bands. You know, they, they weren't on my radar. I mean, I, I went back to Australia for a handful of years um, in the mid to late 80s, so I caught up with all these bands, you know what I mean? So, and, and you know, like you say, you know, whether it's um. Mondo Rock or whoever, you know, they were there before anyway, you know, and, and I, you know, you find different members of different bands were in other bands before and so you know them from that, you know. So, so it, you know, it was an interesting time. I mean, there was some, I mean, some great, amazing music's come out of Australia, amazing music's come out of Australia. And the problem is, you know, it was just unfortunately bad timing for some of those bands because the world wasn't ready to receive international music like it is now. I mean, can you imagine how those bands would have hit with the internet? God, you know, amazing. It would have been a whole different story. Yeah, it's huge. A lot of those bands, are, they became huge and you're you no doubt aware of this, Brazil. Brazil is a huge uh, market for Australian crawl and these these Aussie surf bands that have got a, a, a surf adjacent, I call them. Surf adjacent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, surf country to the surf surf <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. That's funny. Yeah, Brazil, Brazil's an interesting country for music tastes, actually. I mean, that's why they had the Rocking Rio. I mean, it was one of the first mm. big, you know, big festivals to ever, you know, go out of America. And it was because the fan base is so huge there, you know. I mean, they just, they love music and they like it hard and they like it loud, you know. 
they remind me. I, I'm a my my godson. His father is. I suppose you call them Afro-Brazilian or what have you, but they're so similar to us, minus the bloody language. <laughs> That's what I've found. It's, we just get to the same things and, and can party, party, party when we want to. We know how to turn it on, the Brazils and the Brazilians and the Aussies. I know that from experience. I think, you know? I think Brazilians look better when they take their clothes off, though, don't they, with their, <laughs> <laughs> you know, their little festival dances they have and the girls are just wearing very little. I <laughs> know, oh, yeah, I oh, know. It's uh, it's a lot. I haven't been there. It's a country that I'll definitely visit. Um, there you go. Before my time expires, there you go. But uh, the best band that never made it. Who is it? Oh Jesus! The best band that never made it. Oh God! Stumped you. <laughs> You know, there were so many bands, you know, like between tours, I mean, it's it's hard when you're touring constantly because you're seeing what you're seeing and, and then you're only seeing other bands that are making it as well because that's where your friends are, so they give you passes, so you go to those shows, you know. I mean, you know, I, I got into the whole Scar thing over in, in the UK when I was there, you know, and there were some great bands that came out of that and and they were just destined to never make it to any any sizable following you know they were respectable you know and people knew of them you know whether it was 38 special or you know whoever it was but it was like but they were you know they're never going to get any bigger than that you know and that that to me is a shame you know because the music's great you know it's fun music it's good time music it's you know it's it's great music so you know I would say you know that the the genre of music let me let me do a genre at least if I can't do a, an actual band it is probably that you know it's it's you know it's it's reggae you know it's it's edging on reggae it's it's scar it's it's fun you know it's 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 good music you know and it just never really broke you know oh it's it's interesting we both went to the same spot there i was thinking now a better question would have been what was the best scene that didn't really sort of break out and you've answered it that right. way Love it. <laughs> right. yeah what what about though oh, there there are tons of bands that became not so much huge but gained critical acclaim and you thought really that band what's your view on that which band is the most overrated oh god there's so many yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> i know it's shocking oh, isn't it? god. you know i mean I, i've got to say the 80s were a bit horrific for me there was all that hair there was all that hair and makeup and and glam stuff and i just i just couldn't get my head around any of it you know, I couldn't. I mean, I mean, it even filtered across to Aussie at one point. You know, I mean, it's like stop it, <laughs> stop it. It's it's contagious. You know, I mean, White Snake was a decent band until they moved to the states. You know, and then they became this glam band. You know, glam is again. I just I don't get it. I'll never get it. I, I don't understand. I'm totally confused. And and don't help me because I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, that's that's the biggest shock to me was that. It's like, oh, my God, what is that? <laughs> yeah, as long as you had a guitarist that could play a mile a moment, do scales quickly and had the huge hair, all of a sudden you were signed to some indie that was acting as a major, hoping that a major would pick you up. And there was, yeah. I've done the thing where you go into the YouTube deep dives. Even before that, I'd go and buy the CDs for five bucks in the in the 90s because that's all they right. And you put it on, you'd, you'd heard about this band and you and it was, no, it was garbage. You're right. You'd go. Yeah. There's nothing here. It's, but I, I tend to I tend to find and feel free to disagree. A lot of the a lot of bands um, 
when when they have a long career, there's a reason for that. It's because they're quality. Okay. And that's the difference between bands that are hyped up. And I'll throw a few bands under the bus now, like the Jet or Jets or the Vines of the world. Okay. Right. Because they were hyped. It wasn't yeah. it was a very short runway. And then they get up and then bang, they crash straight away. And you can see that a mile away. Yeah, you've got to be able to follow through. You know, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, you've got to be able to follow through. And and again, you know, and that's all about that's about pacing yourself and it's about actually having you know, a stockpile of material before you record your first album. You know, you can't just go into a studio and throw together a bunch of songs and go, okay, that'll do, and then go out and tour it. And then all of a sudden, 12 months into touring that, it's like, okay, we need another album. Well, no one's had time to write anything. No one's knows anything else to play. They've just been playing that one set for, you know, since they've been on a stage, basically. So it's very, very difficult. I mean, I, I you know, this and these shows, you know, whether it's The Voice or whether it's America's Got Talent or whether it's whatever it is, it's just, I just find it terrible. You know, I mean, it's, they get some of these people, I mean, they sound okay for a song, but are you seriously going to listen to two hours of that? You know what I mean? It's like you're talking, you have to go out and entertain an audience for two hours. Yes. That's what you've got to work for. If you if you end up only being able to do an hour and a half, well, I guess that's okay. But, you know, you should shoot for at least two hours, you know, because that's what they're paying for, you know. And if you don't have a stockpile of material and you don't have the talent to create that material on the fly and you can't actually put it together because you're not that good a musician in the back of a bus while you're touring down the road going to the next show, then you've got problems. You know, you've got problems and and this, I call it prefab manufactured music, you know, and it's like, and I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here, but I'm going to jump straight to this Beatles track that's come out. Mm. Now, I listened to it once last night and only because everyone was going on so much about it. I don't think it sounds like Lennon at all. I don't know. I don't think it sounds like him. Um, Bits of it maybe, but not much of it. And I think it's an average song. I don't see the, I, I don't understand. I don't understand the point of it. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever why McCartney would do that. I, I don't get it. Do you get it? No, no I don't. No, I'm not with you. I thought it must have been. I thought actually there's a ton of this stuff out there these days. The two bands in particular get picked on, the Beatles and Metallica, AI-generated right. music. So create a song that sounds like a Metallica song or a Beatles song. I No word of a lie, I thought that's what it was. I thought someone had done a very good job making an AI song sound like a Beatles song. But Well, that's I, what it is. Oh, it's an AI song, is it? Well, basically, I mean, they've used, they've used some, I, I don't know how much, but what they're saying is that they're using some of his phrases and you know, the demo track, so to speak, of whatever the track was. Oh, I thought it was a demo that they'd polished. Oh, yeah, I didn't know it was a bloody A. No, it can, it can go to the bin then if it's AI. Well, how, it's, um, well how, are they, how are they going to polish it? He's not here to polish it. Oh, there's – if you've got the demo, though, you've got the raw you've got the raw audio, which you can separate. Yeah, but I don't think it was like it. a full song. You know what I mean? It yeah. wasn't – I yeah. don't think it was a completed song. And so, so there is – there are points there where it's his voice, but – I don't believe it's all his voice, and I don't think it even sounds like his voice, to be honest. But, um, I mean, there's phrasing there and stuff that sounds like him, 
but to me, there's so much that doesn't. So I just it just confused me, and that's I guess the most polite thing I can say about it is it confused me. <laughs> yeah, but Tana, that's that's a huge problem then because there would be a ton of demos lying around in Paul's vault that are just him maybe just mumbling something. Right. Effectively, they can create an entire song from that, and that's wrong as far as well, I, I mean, well, he's not here to disagree with that. That's the issue. Well, that's the point, exactly. But that's, you know, that's the same as, you know, these shows that they're doing with um, holograms, you know. I mean, they did a Ronnie Ronnie Dio yeah. one, you know. I mean, I don't think Ronnie would have agreed to that. I don't know. I really don't. I don't think he would have. Wendy obviously does because she gets money out of it, you know. I mean, that's all that she was ever about, you know, since he's died especially. But... um you know, it's, it's, she's flogging, she's just flogging him, you know, and, and I just find it really in poor taste. I mean, it's going to be horrific when Ozzy goes. God knows what Sharon's going to get up to. Jesus Christ. God help us. Well, I'm glad you, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I know I've, she's the one per- person I would, there's a couple of people I'd point blank refuse to chat with, interview or what have you. She's one of them. And mm. look, I, I don't know Bob, but I, I had, I've had a number of conversations with Bob Daisley back in the day, right. 20, 20 yeah, I know years Bob. ago. Love yeah. fellow, you know him. He's a he's a sweetheart of a guy. Absolutely. Um, well, I was on that tour. Yeah, I, I, that, that was me getting me my question. I mean, you, yeah. you had a front row seat to what the hell was going on there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was tough, you know. I mean, it was it was a tough tour all round because I just come back from Australia. And I came back specifically, they wanted me to do this tour. So I came back and jumped straight into it, um, not realising what the hell I was jumping into. <laughs> mm. I mean, we had an incredible crew. The sound crew were amazing, just two of my best mates. So that was like, yeah, I'll do it. You know what I mean? It was like, who's on the crew? And Davy Kirkwood and Gunji, and it's like, okay, I'm in, you know, because they were just two of the most brilliant. They did all of the heavy metal bands. They did all of the, you know, that loud, anything loud and substantial, those were the guys behind it, you know. Mm. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. But it was it, it was just a farce, you know. I mean, they didn't give us an itinerary. We didn't have an itinerary for that tour because I think they saw they knew if they showed us the schedule, how how there were no days off and how long it was going to go for, that we would have all run away. <laughs> And and then, you know, it's, we were having problems getting paid. We were having all sorts of things. I mean, it was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare. But the music was pretty damn incredible. <laughs> it was pretty incredible. It really was. You know, it was like, damn, you know, Randy was amazing. Randy was amazing. Bob's like a powerhouse, you know. And it's like, you know, he had a great rhythm section. And, and Ozzy, I mean, once I got used to... <laughs> I spent the first probably week of the tour expecting him to fall off the front of the stage. (laughs) (laughs) And once I realised that that's just how he walks, he walks like a toddler. Yeah, I love that bit in the book. (laughs) And it's like, oh, my God, what's he doing? And it's like, is he all right? And I'm out at the front of the lighting console going, well, I'm not going to make it there to catch him. My God, I hope someone catches him when he goes off. And it was like, and I didn't realise that that's just him and he'd been like that forever. <laughs> was his was was his alcohol consumption, it's legendary, but was it as full on as what it's been written about? In other words, was he just permanently pissed or stoned? 
Yeah, well, he was, you know, I mean, this was this tour was to hopefully get him out of that. So Sharon had a pretty tight leash on him. You know, she was trying her hardest to keep him, you know, sort of under control a bit, but he'd sneak out and come and play with us because <laughs> we were fun and we weren't yelling at him all the time. You know? <laughs> so, so we'd always be running around and the hotels they gave us were just horrible. Oh, my God. That was so cheap. You know, they didn't, they didn't have any room service. They didn't have restaurants. They didn't, you know, like they were the ones where, you know, they set up a little room and you'd have breakfast in the morning and that was it, you know. So we'd go in and we'd raid the fridges and we'd do all sorts of things and and we couldn't find a bar anywhere and we'd try and find a stash of the owner's alcohol or whatever, you know, just getting into trouble, you know, because we were bored, you know. It was like and we didn't have any money because we weren't getting paid. <laughs> so it was like, you know, we're a pack of like vagabonds and thieves ransacking hotels. <laughs> no wonder they didn't want us in their hotels. <laughs> yeah. Were you, were you and uh, were you and Lee, Lake? were you guys mates? Yeah, Lee was Lee was a sweet guy. He was, you know, I mean, I wasn't real close with him, but he was. He's a very pleasant guy and very easy to talk to and stuff, you know. So he was he was easy to get on with, you know. And, and Bob, you know, Bob's so easy to get on with, you know. And Randy was sweet. He just he's quite shy, you know. He was quite an introvert, really, you know. And God forbid, trying to be a vegetarian on that tour. God help you. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh my God, I don't know how he did it. You know, he had his little girlfriend with him the whole time, you know. So just the two of them had come in and they'd really quiet and they'd sort of wander off again, you know. So it was interesting, you know, the dynamic was interesting, you know. Definitely. Did you did you um see things sort of unravel between the band though? Like I understand that nobody was getting paid, but when there was that when it finally clicked that Sharon was running the show and it was forget about band names and self-determination from Aussie's perspective, but you saw it all unravel, surely. Well, you know, I mean, we felt it. You know, you felt the discontent and it's like, well, what's going on? You know, and it's like, well, maybe it's because, you know, there's a problem with money. Maybe it's because, I don't know, I mean, they kept firing lighting people, so my hands were full the whole time trying to redo everything every time someone would turn up. And, you know, and it was like running a crew and doing two, three different jobs because there was no budget on the tour, you know, because, you know, she's she's amazing at getting, you know, caviar on a beer, price, beer budget, you know. I don't know how she does it, but she does it. And, of course, we end up being the ones on the beer budget, you know, whereas working hard and, and getting all we're getting is the empty cans, you know. <laughs> But um, there was there was there was tension, and and you could tell there was things. I mean, it wasn't privy. I wasn't privy at the time that it was meant to be, you know, the whole band as one. You know, because it was it came. You know, the first press we saw was Ozzy Osbourne. You know, Blizzard of Oz. You know, so it was like, oh well, that's what it is. You know, I guess it's Ozzy because and Sharon was so adamant with that as well that that as a crew, that's what we heard. You know. Mm-hmm. Were the, was the band disgruntled? Yes. Did we know why? No. Was it our place to ask? Not really. You know what I mean? So, you know, you don't go up to a band member and ask them why they're upset. It's like telling someone to calm down. You know, you don't do it. It doesn't work. <laughs> you know, yeah. and there's, you know, there's boundaries that you have to respect as a crew person, you know. I mean, they're your employer, you know. They are your employer. So you need to respect that. A lot of people forget that that line gets blurred, you know, and they're going, oh, yeah, but we were hanging out last night till 3 in the morning and and here's my mate now yeah. and I'll do it again tomorrow. And it's like, 
I don't want to hear that. You're two hours late for your call. Yeah, but I was with the band, man. And it's like, no, that's not why you're here. You're not here to play with the band. You're here to do a job. And if you can't do your job, then you need to go home. You know, I mean, I had that instance on Elton, you know, that um, I had a crew member that decided that it was much more fun to stay up all night with Elton uh, because Elton has like outrageous parties. I mean, oh, my God, I never went to any of them because I know better. <laughs> it's like, oh, hell no. No, I'm not going anywhere near that. Uh-uh. You know, so I always stayed well away. But, you know, it got to the point where he came in late for his call and then he wasn't, he was useless. He couldn't do anything because he, he was, you know, he was still drunk, you know, and it's like, right, that's once and it happened again. And so I gave him a warning. I said, this happens again and you're going home. And then the tour manager comes to me, of course, and says, you can't send him home. And it's like, why not? And it's like, well, because, you know, it's, he was just hanging with Elton and blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, then great. Then Elton can pay him and I'll get another crew member to take his place. And he can play with Elton as long as he wants. Well, all of a sudden the guy's getting sent home because he wasn't that much, in, he wasn't that entertaining, I guess. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't well, want him on the crew. Yeah. Yeah. He's like I, a match that gets struck and burns out. Yeah. Well, you know, that's it's again, it's not why he was there. You know, he wasn't hand chosen to entertain anyone, and he was just got caught up in it for a little bit too long. You know, but um, but you know, that's how it is. You know, I mean, it it happens, and um, you know, I I say to people that you know, people ask about behaviour. You know, how crews behave, and you know what they're doing, and all that sort of thing. And and I always say it filters down from the top. If it's not happening at the top, it's not going to happen at the bottom because it won't be tolerated. But if it's happening at the top, then it's fair. You know what I mean? Everyone's going for it, you know, and, and you know, because a lot of times people have gone, oh, you know, this and this happened and, oh, the band would never stand for that. And it's like, well, actually, <laughs> I hate to be the one to tell you, but, you know, so, you know, there's different behaviours that are tolerated and, and you know, is it any different now? It's a little bit different now, but it's only because it's become such a huge billion-dollar industry that they keep a tighter rein on things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And at the other end of it, like I had a chat to a fellow this morning that was driving from Boston to Denver. You know, four people stacked in a van. It feels like part of it's gone full circle, where a band's completely managed. They're on, they're on a, a label like Nuclear Blast or what have you, but they're self-managed, which means that they've got all of the merch in the van as well. Yeah, so it feels yeah. like as though you could probably relate to a lot of what they're doing from your time when you were starting out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They've still got to start. You know, these bands still have to start somewhere. You know, they really do. You know, and. And it's it's getting harder for them because the smaller venues, a lot of them have been bought up or a lot of them are closing, you know, and it's and it's tough, you know. So my heart goes out to them, you know. I mean I saw a documentary where there was this young girl and she was, you know, she was the tour manager slash merchandise person, merch person and something else, some other job she had as well. And they do that a lot now with these small bands. You know, all of a sudden they've got like four different titles. You know what I mean? They're the they're the tour accountant, they're the tour manager, they're the merchandising person and whatever else on the driver between shows, you know. So, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we did that anyway. We all used to do that anyway. And, you know, there was really merchandise very early on. But um, we just didn't have titles for it, so no one knew how much we were really doing. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds more when you say you're doing four jobs and you've got a title for each one, <laughs> as opposed to saying, <laughs> as opposed to just saying you're doing everything. 
people tend to not believe you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, look, something else I found fascinating was you were there for the birth of Lollapalooza, so the so-called alternative revolution. Yeah. Back in 1991 and 1992 and those stories you have about Ice Tea and Ice Cube and Body Count, they're, they're fascinating. I'm sure you left quite a bit out in those ones. But <laughs> I, what your memories of did you do you have any memories of working with Henry Rollins in 1991? Yeah, I did a lot with Henry. He was a client of mine for a long time. I, I did everything from <laughs> you know, I did everything from moving his equipment around the world to um moving his books around the world, you know, because he's, you know, a published author and stuff. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's an interesting character. He really is a character. His spoken word stuff's amazing. I love his spoken word stuff. It's hilarious. Have you heard the one about coming to Australia? Have you uh, heard that? I, I think there's a few out there, to be honest. So I'll, I'll say, tell, tell me the story. Uh, jogs a memory, yeah. Oh, oh, no, this is this is his spoken word. You know, he does these spoken word things occasionally. He's done ones about going to England, you know, going to Glastonbury or Reading and all that sort of stuff, you know. He's got does ones about, you know, going to Australia, you know, and he talks about, you know, because he's very serious and stern a lot, you know what I mean, you know. So he talks in this voice, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, I just got off the road. I'm never, ever going back out on the road again. It's like it's hell out there and and there's never any money and there's, you know, there's there's nothing and you're dirty and you don't get to shower and you're doing shows and shows and shows. And I'm never going out there again. And then you hear, bring, bring, phone ringing, you know, <laughs> picks it up. Yes, you know, yes, this is Henry. What? England? Glastonbury, I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then the story continues. You've got to, if you can find his set of tapes that, well, they were CDs when they came out. I don't, not CDs. They're actually, I got them on tape, on cassette tape. I don't know if they made it onto CDs or not, but they were hilarious. He did this whole series and a series about Australia as well, which was so funny, so funny. But, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, a unique character, you know. I mean, he was he was there at the the head of the whole punk thing, you know. I mean, he got into that. He was like with the aggressive side of the LA punk scene, you know, when it started getting aggressive, you know. I mean, you know what I liked about the punk scene was it was inclusive. You could be a girl and they didn't care. They really didn't care. I mean, punks, the punk era probably had more female artists and and instrument players than any other genre. You know what I mean? Per ratio, per capita, you know, and it's like, and so that's what I liked about it. But I was working with bands like Status Quo and The Who and stuff like that. So I'd have to sneak off on days off and go to the punk clubs and stuff, you know, <laughs> and they go to me, what are you doing? You know, and I'm going, they were my age, you know, I was still younger than everyone, you know, everyone I toured with up until the end of the 80s, early 90s were at least 10 years older than me. You know what I mean? And it was like, so I just needed some, I needed a tribe that was my age that I could relate to, you know. But anyway, getting back to Henry, you know, it's like I went to his house one day to pick up, you know, boxes and boxes of this book that he just had published. And um, I walk in and there's no furniture in the house. And it's like, oh, I like your house, Henry. It's nice. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's like, so did you just move in? What? No, I've been here years. <laughs> I'm like I'm trying to make polite conversation. <laughs> and it's like he's got like a workout gym area 
And that was it. That's all. I I mean, obviously, I didn't go into bedrooms or anything like that, but it was like that was it. (laughs) There was a gym in the corner and that was his furniture. And in the other corner was like all the ceiling boxes of books, you know. So it's like, well, I'll just get the books and go then, shall I? Yeah, okay. All right. Okay, bye. (laughs) Wow. But, you know, he's he's a very interesting character, definitely. Yeah, definitely interesting. I I don't feel to your point. I love it when he snaps into comedic routine. He's become yeah. very serious though, mm. and he sort of lost a bit of that spark that that comedian stuff. My, my wife and I would we, we'd go to see him every time he came to Australia, and we oh, nice. we just laugh our heads off at some of the comedy yeah. like um, talking oh, about. Funny. Yeah, yeah, talking about the clothes that they make that they sell at Walmart and shit, you know, like yeah. super action hero. It's about the time of the Iraq war and stuff and it's got some fucking idiot with, you know, a machine gun on it. And, oh, right. You know, with yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. the sleeves are as big as sleeping bags and it's like, who buys this shit? <laughs> <laughs> it is exactly. intimidable. It is, you, you, can't, you can't mimic his delivery, but it's all about timing comedy and he's just got it down pat. Oh, he's, he absolutely has it. I mean, he should have made a second career out of that, I thought. Hmm. Or well, a longer I don't know why one. he didn't. I don't know why he didn't. He would have been great at stand up. Would have been. I, th- I think. I, th- I think it's a matter of focusing with him. You know, he writes a book, and then he'll do stand up. Then he'll go back on the road, and then he'll do this. And and I think it's a bit of a moving target theory with him. You know. I think you're right, and you'd know. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, another character, a uh, bloke. I, I when I say I love, I just the the, the his aura. Um, I've had one conversation with him, which I cherish. But Al, Al Jorgensen. From oh, God, Al. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are your memories? Lollapalooza and Al. The comment was, Tana. So this was the night before the opening night of Lollapalooza that Al was on. So, Tana, can you do me a huge favour? Oh, okay, what? You know, this is the head guy at Lollapalooza. <laughs> He's gone, I want you to babysit someone for me because we've got him. He's got to make it to the first show. You know, I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. He says, I'll take you up to the hotel room, introduce you. You know, he's a nice guy. You guys will get on well. He says, but you just got to keep him in that hotel room. Don't let him leave the hotel room, whatever you do. <laughs> I'm like, what? why me? You know, which was never answered. Hello. <laughs> As we're marching down the hotel call corridors and there's a, Knock on the door, the door opens, and he's like, Al, this is Tana. Tana's going to hang with you guys. Okay, yeah. Pushes me in, shuts the door and leaves. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so this was me babysitting Al, trying to make sure he didn't OD before the first show, <laughs> basically. Yeah. You want to be, be brutally honest about it. Um, and it was just, I, I, I'm not going to get into the 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 ins and outs of it, but it was so eye-opening for me. For someone who's seen everything from Led Zeppelin's camp when they were at their darkest time to, you know, just, I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. It was like, oh, my God, you know. So I learned a lot that night. Um, (laughs) Did he get away from me? He did. Around about 4.30 in the morning he slipped out on me. Um, I thought it was safe, but it wasn't. But um, but he did come back. Well, we sent people out and found him. So he left a trail of breadcrumbs, basically, so I could figure out exactly where he'd gone from piecing the night back together again. So we did get him back. We did get him on stage, and he did make it through the tour. 
But um, that's how concerned they were at the beginning. <laughs> they had someone babysit him to make sure he made it to the first show. <laughs> I don't know how he hasn't lost his mind. I don't know either. I don't know either. It's like, but he, he was yet again another interesting character, you know, quite intelligent, you know, he's an intelligent yeah, very- guy. Very you know, I mean, a great con- a great conversation with him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you know, I mean, so many people get, you know, judge it. I guess it's the whole judge a book by its cover type thing. You know, it's the same thing with Road Crew. You know, I mean, Road Crew were always misjudged. You know, oh, they're dirty, they're sweaty, they're animals. They, you know, they don't bathe. They're this, they're that. And you know, how can they be anything but you know, just big gorillas? You know. And those big gorillas that didn't bathe or, I mean, the reason why we didn't bathe is because we had to get to the next show. You know, we didn't, it wasn't by choice that we weren't bathing. You know, we were told that we'd arrive at a show, set it up, do the show, break it down, put it in the truck and drive from Melbourne to Sydney to do the next show. That's that very next morning, you know. So, you know, sorry, we didn't have time to have a shower. And in those days, you know, venues didn't have showers or anything like that. So it's not as though you could shower at the venue. There were no tour buses, so you couldn't shower on a tour bus. Mm. I mean, you know, and you probably wouldn't see a hotel for three or four nights. I mean, it was a nightmare, you know. But those people were the ones that designed this industry on their backs. You know what I mean? They built this industry up on their backs. You know, they created the what it took to get all these trusses up in the air, what it took to get these PAs up in the air, what it took to to have the space for like special effects and pyrotechnics and all that sort of stuff, you know, were were those smelly roadie types, which I'm proud to be one, mm. you know, because they're an incredible group of people, you know. And to this day, you know, I mean, there's still some of the original people out there. And you know, the younger ones that have come along now, they they look up to different ones of us, you know, and just they're in awe, you know, and, and I think it's it's deserved, you know, it's respect, you know. So it's it's good to see that they're getting their, you know, they're getting their hurrahs, you know, because they should, you know. You you were there from the very beginning. Um do, do you are you asked to act as a sounding board by these more astute management types who get that you know what needs to be done? Not so much management companies. No, no. You tend to spend a lot of time. I do a lot of. Um, I do a little bit of mentorship work. You know, yeah. for different organisations. You know, I do college speaking for different colleges. You know, I'll go in and speak speak to students like that. Um, you know, I did something at USC not so long ago. And, um, you know, which is always nice. I've done a couple of colleges in the UK, you know, all through Europe. I've done a few other ones. And, you know, that's I enjoy doing that. I enjoy speaking about it. I enjoy speaking about it as a profession, as a trade, you know, and also, you know, showing the pitfalls but also showing the high points as well, you know. I think it's important that people go in with their eyes wide open. You know, management companies, you know, management companies don't have the power they used to have now. Promoters have that power. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the be-all and end-all is, is with the promoter now, with companies like AEG and Live Nation. They've taken over everything, you know. Yeah, we right. saw it coming. We saw it coming and no one did anything about it, you know. What do you do? Except for Sharon, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe Wendy. <laughs> there you go. So talking about another fierce lady, Courtney Love, have you had a lot to do with her over the years? 
No, I haven't. I've, I met her once actually backstage at Lollapalooza, and she was quite hilarious. Actually, she, we, we took, she took a shine to me. <laughs> Not sure why. I, I seem to have this effect on certain artists. But um, so we had a couple of cigarettes together, and and that was about it, really. But um, I I always thought it was a shame, actually, because I thought she was quite talented. I liked her music. Um, I just think she was her own worst enemy, you know. And and there's so many, so many artists that fall into that category, you know. Whether it's Amy Winehouse, you know. Oh God, she needed you, you know. Whether it's you know, I, it's it's yeah. funny, you know, because I see these, I see these performers going through this course and I see them going to this downhill spiral and I and I say to myself god I wish I could be there to help them yeah. not I don't think that I'm I'm a be all end all solution to anything but god I would have given it a damn good shot and they would not have been they would not have had a yes man you know what I mean they would have had someone who told them which means I probably would have got fired pretty quickly anyway so it doesn't really matter it's sad yeah I, I did. T- yeah, I agree with you. My point. I, I don't use the word tragic very often because it's not deserved. But Amy's was tragic because she was an incredibly talented young lady who just seemed to be fed. Okay, she developed a habit, and then it seemed right. available to her twenty four seven. And within what three, four, five years, whatever it was, gone. Yeah, three. It's, yeah, it's like like what Neil said. Made every excuse a term, but junkies like a setting sun. Yeah, it, it's it's so true. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard, you know. I mean, it's 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 really difficult now, you know. And it's and and I mean, the thing now is because it's such a mega industry, a lot of this gets pushed under the carpet now. You know, it's not spoken about. It's denied. Oh no, this person's no. This these people don't do drugs. You know, you get out on the road, and sure enough, it's all going on like it was. You know, but. No one's admitting to it because then it's it's an insurance issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, yeah. It's an that's the bottom line. It's money. You know, so no one admits to anything. You know, they just brush it under the carpet. So you know, people are still dying. People are still ODing. You know, but everyone's just pretending everything's all right. Nothing to see here. Move on. Well, there's a lot to see actually. <laughs> you know, it's it's not good. Yes. Yeah. Are there any other artists that? you would have loved to have worked with that you didn't have the opportunity to? You know, there was a time where I really wanted to go out on a Clapton tour, but I was kind of glad I didn't because it was the one that failed and um, he was having all sorts of terrible problems anyway, you know, so that was that was a bit of a shame. Um, I, You know, there's a lot of tours I would have liked to have done, um, but it's just my my priorities went to, this is going to, I've chosen this as a career. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to work as much as I can and I'm going to work with the best people that I know so I can learn as much as I can, you know. So quite often, like, for example, the first Aussie tour, you know, the Blizzard of Oz tour, you know, it's, I could have been, you know, working with other people instead of Aussie and and I didn't go on the tour for Aussie. I went on the tour because there were crew people who were really, really good on that, you know, on that tour. So that that's usually, you know, from a crew person's point of view, that's usually a heads up that there's something going on here that's worth seeing. You know what I mean? If these good people are coming on board and it's not a huge tour, why are they wasting their time? Yeah. You know what I mean? Why are they giving their time to this? So I would tend to do that. I would follow like um, decent, you know, good crew people, you know, 
what's coming up next? Well, you know, we've got an Elton thing. I mean, you know, like, for example, you know, I mean, I, I did Quo for four years, status quo, and I did them for four years because I'd helped build the lighting system, so I knew the lighting system. And then when they stopped touring, I took the lighting system and went to a production company and did all these other bands with that rig, which was still Quo's rig, and they were getting paid for it. And I was getting paid for it, but it gave me all these other bands to work with to get different perspectives on, you know, how different people are doing shows, what what's new, what's going on, you know. So, and and to me, it was always it was volume. I would go for the volume of like as much work as I could, and as frequently as I could, you know. Whereas some people would just stay back on a retainer and work for just one band, you know. And that was never my mentality because. A, I, I get bored. I can't sit still that long. You know what I mean? I can't sit still. So I've got to, I've got to keep moving, you know, and, and I want to know what's out there. I want to know what's out there. I want to know what it is. I want to know what's different, you know, and, and I want to see all different sorts of music, you know. So, you know, whether it's, you know, the police or whether it's, you know, Pearl Jam or, you know, Kravitz, doesn't matter, you know, Luther Vandross. I mean, all of these bands had something that attracted me to wanting to work with them, you know, and and it was usually a different reason for each one, you know. I mean, you know, bands like Jane's Addiction, I just, I, I love that vibe, you know. I mean, it's down and it's dirty, you know, and I like it, you know. Luther Vandross, not my sort of music at all, but the production was something else, you know. It was incredibly professional. It was over the top for the time. And it was great, you know, and good people working on that tour. He always had good people and he always had good musicians, you know. So those were the sort of things that I always looked for, you know. I'll make this my final question for you then, and I've saved this one for you because out of anybody that I've asked this question of, and there's not many, but I've always picked my mark with this one, I reckon you could answer it better than anyone. Is rock and roll, <laughs> is rock and roll dead? No, I don't think it'll ever die. It may lose some of its sheen and some of its um, perspective, but I don't think, you know, I mean, what are we calling rock and roll? Are we calling Chuck Berry? Are we calling the Rolling Stones? Are we calling Soundgarden? What are we calling rock and roll? I think that's I think that's the question, actually, and I'm really glad you bring it up. So for, for my for my um the way that I look at it, everything from Chuck Berry right up to the fiercest black metal, if you're using guitar, bass, drums, and you've got someone standing out the front, hey, baby, it's all rock and roll. So that's what yeah. I mean by that. So it's just to, just to add to it, when I say is it dead, is it niche? There you go. A better way of asking the question is, is it like jazz? Has it become niche? Or will it, will it, as it stays as a mainstream art form, are they over? I, I think it'll stay mainstream because... Like we've both just said, it keeps evolving, you know, and it's always been at the front of every evolution, you know, whether it's you want to call it grunge or do you want to call it rock, you know. I mean, what is that? I mean, Pearl Jam's, you know, is, is that, yes, they're a grunge band because they came out of Seattle and they wore flannel. Do they play rock music? Do you think they play rock music? Oh, absolutely. I call it. Whether you call yeah. it brunch or what, it's still rock and roll to me, yeah. Well, right. So I think, but what I think is going to keep it at the forefront is it will just keep doing that. It'll keep morphing. You know, it's it's it went from, you know, 
you know, it it became grunge. What is it now? Then it, then there was industrial. I mean, industrial, you know, black, you know, black metal. What are these? Are they rock? Are they is is metal rock? You know, well, Aussie's metal, right? Is Aussie metal? Iron Maiden, are they metal? I don't know anymore. I've got to say, I don't know because I mean, originally they were metal bands, right? But now yeah. they're kind of rock bands. It's rock, you know. Yeah. I mean, Metallica. Metallica is a rock band. Definitely rock, not metal. Yeah. You know. Yeah, they're a rock band. You know. So I think it's really. I think. Sorry. You're right. <laughs> It's my dog outside saying he's crying, going. Really? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so no, I don't think it'll die. I think it'll just keep morphing into whatever, whatever's the flavor of the decade. Yeah, I, I, I think you. I hope you're right. Um, I don't have the answer, which is on. It's a genuine question. I hope it yeah. continues to evolve. I just, I've got daughters aged eight and ten, and and between them and their friends and their extended network, rock just doesn't come into it. That's my wow. only concern is that it's all this J-pop and K-pop stuff. I don't care about that stuff. That stuff can evolve and be as successful as it needs to be. But it'll, it'll so vibrant, you know. It, it'll come back like the Rolling Stones. It'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll let you go and feed, feed the pup there, right? Um, I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time here, Tanner. I love the book. That's again. great. Yeah. No, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for thinking of me. Well, there you have it, Tanner Douglas. I encourage you again to check out her book. It is a fantastic read. All right, go across to scarsandguitars.com if you're interested in many more conversations with luminaries and important people from the world of hard rock, heavy and extreme metal. And not just that, I've developed a bit of a reputation for having conversations with the members of Cradle of Filth. So there is a dedicated link in the website to checking out all of those chats i assure you it is well worth your time all right that's it from me check out my book too there's a link in the banner on the website on the home page if you buy it hit me up because i want to thank you in person as well my name's andrew mckay smith and i'm the host of the scars and guitars podcast series until next time it's a very goodbye for now This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, 
playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.